All right, if you have a seat, if you have a Bible, you'll need to open to Joshua chapter 1. We've got Bibles in the back, so if you don't have one, it's yours to keep. Uh, We had an awesome men's retreat. I'm so wiped out. Um, They stayed up late like junior high kids, and then they talked like girls the whole time. And it's, uh, they, yeah, they, I I played pastor the whole time. Uh, No, it was good, but I was saying that last service, I think that our church might have the gift of snoring because it was just like a snore fest, 2010, like crazy. Every I went to bed at pro, I don't even know what hour. It was in the morning, sometime Saturday, and I went to bed and I heard it was a large dorm, and I heard snore contests going on from a distance. I could hear like a rumbling of some kind. It was like that is snoring. And then every guy the next morning, I'm like, how is it? I got a snore. I had a guy to snore, and like so. There's like snore contests going on, and it was awesome. So I. Um, I, uh, I don't snore, of course, so either we need to lay on our bellies or something, or we're all fat. I'm not sure which one. All right, we're in Joshua chapter 1. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Joshua, and we will hit everything because we believe every verse has been breathed out by God and intended for us to encourage us in our faith and to teach us uh, something about the Lord, and so we will do that. We'll begin right away in uh, chapter 1, and we'll go through the first uh, part of that, and it says this, Chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river and river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father God, I pray this morning that you will speak to us clearly through your word. That you will encourage us. You will convict us where we need conviction and comfort us where we need comfort. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Now, the first nine verses of this book are particularly about Joshua. The man, the leader, the general. This guy named Joshua, the son of Nun. Which is kind of a funny name, actually, maybe somewhat ironic. Um, We don't know much about Joshua's family or his history uh, at all. Uh, We can assume that uh, he was born in Egypt, uh, that he was born into slavery, that he witnessed um, at a a spry young age of probably 30 or 40 the uh, uh, release or the freedom, the exodus from Egypt and all the miracles he saw all of that firsthand. Um, but unlike his predecessor, Moses, we don't know everything uh, about him. We know what happened to Moses the, the day basically he was born until the day he dies. 
But we don't know such things about Joshua's life. We don't have a complete record. And Joshua's life and faith are, are largely defined by his active leadership. And he's a man who, who moves forward without much history to look back on. He is the one of two men who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, knowing that God had a special plan, if you will, for him, that someday they were going to cross over into the land because God had promised that as everyone else is waiting to die basically over the age of 20. And so we come to know Joshua not by his lineage, not by his resume, not by the things that he has done or the things that he hasn't done, but by what he does, by what he does when God says go. It's a faith that quite frankly is encouraging to me because I know everyone comes to the table with a story. And a lot of the times those stories govern us in terms of where we do, where we go, how we walk, whether we walk at all. And oftentimes our stories paralyze us. But we look at Joshua and he says, forget the history, I'm going forward. And he's defined by what he does the moment God speaks. So when you hear God's word and you hear God's command, you certainly have a choice for getting what, as Paul says, was behind and looking forward to do something different, to change, to grow, to move. And so, when God speaks to Joshua, I love this man, I think he is clearly a type of Jesus, a model for what Jesus is going to to ultimately fulfill completely, but we see a guy who doesn't make excuses when God's word comes, he doesn't play the victim, he doesn't consider what the command might mean for three or so years while he's pondering whether he should do what God has clearly said to do. People do that quite often. So whether God asks him to serve in the shadow of Moses and say, you are going to be the assistant. You are going to be the guy that no one knows about that does all the work. Whether he says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 38 additional years, though it's not your fault and you're the one of two guys who actually had it right. Whether he says, you're going to leave now this group of young people who have never, ever fought a single battle into the most difficult battlefield that exists against some of the most battle-hardened armies there are. He doesn't make excuses. He goes. He's a man whose trust in God we can see. It's much more than just, I believe. He moves. And so, the Scriptures do give us a little bit of history into this young man who became the leader of God's army here. We're first introduced to Joshua. He comes on the scene in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, I believe 14 is where really the crossing of the Red Sea happens. And in 15, chapter 15 of Exodus, that's when Moses sings his grand song of, uh, about the glories of God and the things that he has done as he reflects on, on what he did to, to free them. And then, a couple chapters later, in chapter 17, we see that they're in their first battle, right after crossing the Red Sea, and Moses selects a young man named Joshua. And Joshua leads this small band of slaves and overwhelms a a powerful army. And it's at this point that Joshua kind of positions himself, or I should say God positions him, at a place where he transitions to to Moses' kind of right-hand man. And you have Moses and this guy named the assistant, who I said last week, I always thought he's like, you know, like the executive assistant who's taking notes for Moses, but he's a general 
who is doing exactly what Moses wants him to do. The first battle is the one you may be familiar with where Moses is holding the rod as they're fighting and, and people have to hold his arms up. And that's Joshua down there doing all the fighting. And so Joshua is, is a stud. And it's Joshua who comes down, I should say, who actually walked up the mountain with Moses by God's request. The one guy that did, while everyone else said, it's too scary, you go talk to God because we're afraid we'll die if we do. It was Joshua who, who comes down with Moses when Israel's worshiping the golden calf. And it's Joshua who alone sat at the front of the tent of meeting while Moses was inside talking to God face to face like a friend. And Joshua could hear, imagine all those things that no one else got to experience. And it was Joshua who, along with Caleb, was the one of two guys who held the very unpopular line against the ten other spies that had went, and eventually against his friends and his family and all of Israel, saying, no, this is what we should do. Don't rebel against God. And so it's in the wilderness where Joshua begins to transition by God's command into the, from the assistant to leading this group to the guy who would one day replace his pastor and his mentor and his friend and his leader. And so it begins with the death of Moses. And it's curious that the book of Joshua begins and ends with a death. It begins with the death of Moses and ends with the death of Joshua. And so the death of Moses is actually, if you turn back into Deuteronomy, the last chapter, 34, it's recorded the death of Moses. And it's an interesting experience I think we need to to read. It says in, in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab, to Mount Nebo and the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. So he imagines on this mountain with God alone, looking across, seeing the land. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Wow. That's just got to be incredibly difficult. Although you never hear Moses complain. You never hear him whine. You never hear him argue. He's 40 years been leading these people towards this promised land. Been faithful 99% of the time. And God said, this is it, man. This is my promise. It's going to happen, but you're not going. So Moses, the servant, the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he dies, and his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hand on, hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So God shows Moses this promised land, says you're not going to enter. And this was not the first time that Moses had been told that. It was actually the second time God had showed them the land like this, and the third time he had told them he wasn't going in. So it was not a surprise to him. He's not like, that's awesome. You're not going, what? Okay, he, he knew. He knew why he wasn't going. And, 
If you read in Numbers uh, 27, he tells them specifically why he's not going, which is actually, it occurs in Numbers 20. But in 27 he says, because you rebelled, verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. He said, Moses, you rebelled at this place. He's like, what's that place? And if you read in Numbers 20, you see what he's talking about. And what happened was, uh, the people were grumbling again, which was not very uncommon for Israel. And they were grumbling against their leadership because they didn't have any water. And so they began the same process of, well, we were better back in Egypt. We should go back there. And, and they were ultimately... Um, you know, deserving of death because God had been so faithful to them, but he shows mercy to them. And Moses appeals to God, and God tells him where they can get water. And he tells Moses to take your staff and go speak to this rock in front of the people, and I will give water to them. And according to Numbers 20, he goes and does this. Numbers 20, verse 10, he says, He gathered the assembly together before the rock. So there's a big rock there in front of all the assembly. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Great beginning of a speech, right? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Yeah, bring it out of the rock. Yeah, shall we? All right. And what does he do? Moses lifts up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. All right, fantastic. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God didn't say to strike the rock. He said, speak to the rock. He disobeyed. Well, he really disobeyed. And I... I Upon first reading, you kind of you read that and you go, God, God's kind of a bit harsh, isn't he? I mean, come on. What's a little standard there? I mean, wasn't Moses, you know, just a little minor infraction? Maybe Moses misheard him. You know, maybe, maybe Moses was just trying to be kind of like dramatic. Like, come on, you want water? We want water. You want water? Yeah. All right. You know, and... Maybe he's just trying to, like, you know, get the crowd going and get them excited. But whatever, we're not really sure what Moses was thinking. But we're so quick to, like, well, didn't he just obey the spirit of what God meant? I mean, who determines that? Right? Well, I'm following the spirit of the command. Seems fairly individualistic in determining what that is. I mean, come on, Moses didn't try to disobey, but did he try to obey perfectly? And I think understanding this event as it sets the stage for for Joshua will actually help you read Joshua from God's perspective, specifically his perspective on sin and disobedience. When Joshua is asked to annihilate innocent people who are steeped in idolatry, The question is not, why won't he let Moses in? The question is, why does he let anyone in to his presence? All these people were rebellious, right? All these people were sinful, right? Why why Moses here? And I think 
we begin to judge the love of God towards sinners and maybe specifically toward Moses because we misunderstand the true holiness of God. We ultimately want to pass for Moses' little minor infraction because we want to pass for ourselves in our little minor infractions. I mean, I'm, I'm generally a good person. I mean, I haven't done the most evil things I could have done. I haven't hated all these people, and yeah, I could have loved a few more people a little bit more, but we want a pass. And Moses, he deserves a pass. He's not that bad. In the eyes of a holy God, he is as terrible as a terrible person you can think of. He has disobeyed a holy God. He has done something worthy of judgment as all of us have. The one true holy God is completely separate from evil. He cannot and will not tolerate any level of disobedience. Nothing. We don't think of God that way. We're like, well, God's just kind of a forgiving parent. He is a father, but he is not human. He is holy and perfectly just and perfectly loving, and he cannot tolerate sin. The awesomeness of God and the fear of God has to be in the forefront of our mind or you will not take sin seriously. It will just be a little deal. His commands, good advice. Without perfect obedience, catch this, without perfect obedience, you and I, no one will be able to enter into God's presence. Without perfect obedience, that's impossible. Exactly! Exactly. Enter Joshua. God is the Savior. That's what it's about. It's about God doing it, not us. And so, verse 2, Moses dies. Israel's mourning and crying. And he says, now go. And they mourn for the 30 days And you can imagine, I mean, I try to imagine how they must have felt. These guys have been following Moses for for 38 years, 40 years. They've been traveling around the wilderness. They, They know only what their parents have taught them about God's miracles. We're actually very similar in our faith. We always like, well, if God would put a hand writing on the wall, if God would come and do miracles and shoot lightning down and kill all the sinners, and we would, I would believe. How many times you pray to prayer, like, just let the star shoot across the sky right now, and I will know that you are telling me to do this. Don't forget, the Israelites saw it all, and they were the faithless ones. They saw incredible miracles, and they still didn't believe. And so you have this new generation that hasn't seen any of it. And they are dependent upon what? The witness. The word. The written word about what happened sounds a lot like us. Dependent upon God's word for the witness, for the truth of what happened on Calvary. For the truth of what happened even with Israel. But this is the leader, the only one they've known. Their direct line, so to speak, to God. And perhaps they even believe and begin to doubt that the promises God had are done. But God shows us this incredible thing that, honestly, I think all pastors should hear and focus on this, that God's mission is way bigger than one man. And you're seeing a lot of churches polarizing 
their entire ministry around a guy. And it's just dangerous. And if the mission becomes, if this becomes Sam's church or Jim's church or whatever, if that's where it focuses, if, if when a certain person preaches where I've been at churches happen, half the church doesn't show up, we've lost the idea of what we are as the body of Christ on mission together completely. And so we must work hard with intention to not polarize a ministry or a mission around a guy because God's way bigger than that and he shows it here. What that means, though, is people actually have to step up when voids are created and people actually have to lead and realize that they can't be dependent upon someone else all the time to lead them. But Joshua, I think how he feels, and it's not... It's not as if Joshua's been just seeing Moses like, you know, with an IV drip waiting to die. Moses has been vigorous and leading, and God's like, dead, done. And now Joshua's like, uh, wow. I mean, I'm just kind of imagining how he might feel because he has to step up. He has to actually fight, though he wasn't expecting it. I mean, but like Joshua, I think we all have our excuses for not going on mission. And Joshua's might be something like, I'm not qualified. I've got fear. I've got some self-doubt. I've got some serious concerns about my ability. I mean, he was an assistant, right? He was a sidekick. He was in the shadow of the leader. He didn't actually have to make any difficult decisions. Just kind of like Joshua. What, okay, Moses, that sounds good. I'll do that. Sure. What should I do? Didn't have to like actually lead and direct and guide and, and discern what the right thing might be to do. Leading means stepping actually into a place where you are going to suffer criticism more than someone else. Where when someone says, who's responsible for that? It's you. Or the place where you have to sacrifice more and rewards are less. The place where when you're the head of the army, who do they shoot first? The officers. When you charge the hill, your first one, who wants to do that? It's much easier to be a spectator on the back watching the race go on. I'm not qualified. He maybe thinks he's not ready. I mean, I, I don't see how he can be ready. He's been going around for this wilderness for, for 38 years. And he's like, wow, dude, that was a quick 38 years. Maybe he's excited, but I can imagine how I would feel like, man, just let me pray about this for a little bit longer. Like, that's pretty serious, God. And notice God doesn't say, hey, Hey, uh, Joshua, so it's been, you know, 40 years. Now, Moses died, so I'm thinking maybe we're ready to go. What do you think about that? He says, now go. Now. It's time to go move these people across the Jordan. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. Now. Move. How often, honestly, when God's command comes and it's like clear as day, because like, what do you mean by now? I mean, how often, think about this, when we, how often do we unnecessarily pray about the things that God has clearly commanded? That's such a favorite phrase for us when we're, we're charged to do certain things. I'm going to pray about this. As an excuse to not actually go, I'm not quite ready. I don't think God really asked Joshua if he was ready. When the opportunity came, he said, Go. I'm not ready. Moses said the same thing. You know that? You're supposed to go into Egypt. Well, I'm not ready. I can't talk. They're not going to listen to me. Excuse me. He's like, dude, I'm the one doing this. Just go. 
And the last thing I think maybe he, he doesn't feel supported. He doesn't say, hey, take a few of the people with you. He says, take all the people. You know how hard it is to move thousands of people in one direction together? It's about as hard as getting an entire church on mission. <laughs> to think the same things, to go towards the same goals. And I imagine he's thinking, I mean, this is the generation of children raised by the generation that wanted to stone Joshua and Moses. That's really a good thought. Okay? You'll see next week when he comes and he tells them, I'm in charge now, and they're like, hey, we'll follow you just like we did Moses. Oh, fantastic. We know how that worked out. I imagine that he is uh, feeling a little like, I don't know if I'm... If I can do this, it's very common to hate new leaders. Well, actually, it's very common for guys to, and women to be afraid of change. And there's some major changes coming. But he says, move all these people in this one direction. And I imagine the people themselves have gotten, as Joshua has in his position, pretty comfortable in their aimless wandering. I mean, you, you, you wander aimlessly without purpose, then you don't have to accomplish anything. God continues to provide in this wilderness experience. He's provided food for them every day. They are not at war. They have their children. They have their families. You know, they pick up their tents every now and then and move, but they've got their security. They have come to rest in their eyes in a fairly predictable and comfortable routine of life. Sound like anybody we know? I don't, why do I want change? Disruption. This is good, but it's not flowing milk and honey. But I got my manna. got my meat. I mean, I, my kids are happy. Why would I want to go do something, you know, for God and follow Him that direction? That looks like a battlefield over there. I mean, seriously, that's what He's asking me to do. I know you guys are comfortable and things are great and really no one's bothering you and you know, there's no enemies nearby. You are fed. You've got, you're provided for. Um, now go over to this battlefield where the most battle-hearted armies at the time of the planet are there and they hate your guts and they hate me and go kill them all. I mean, that doesn't sound really attractive. But living on mission, quite frankly, is going to require a complete change a change of attitude toward God and His Word, a change of attitude towards leadership, a change of attitude towards one another, a change in how we live our lives completely. It is almost a, a second transformation where you, your heart is ripped out of stone and Jesus saves you and puts His heart of flesh in there and you're like, all right, yeah, I'm comfortable. No, we're not done. Now it's time to be sent like Jesus was sent. And I think that willingness to change, and I'm not saying that everyone needs, I love, personally, I love change. It's natural for me. When I was a high school teacher, I'd come in and I'd change the desks like every three days. They'd come in like, what is going on? I'm like, I don't know, just change. You keep them on their toes. So you can change a little too much, I understand that. But I do believe that people's willingness to change, specifically in accordance with God's Word, when God's Word confronts your routine and confronts your comfort, your willingness to change or lack thereof proves whether we are more faithful to God and His mission or more faithful to our own plans and comfort. And that's nothing for me to decide, but I certainly can see in the lives of people who organize their life around vacations and success 
and whatever kind of car or house they want as opposed to organizing their life around God and expecting or hoping for Him to give whatever He wants to give. There's a difference. But in this case, in verse 3 to 5, He gives him clearness of mission. And He says, Every place that the sole of your feet are going to tread, I've given to you, just as I promised. And He lays out the land, what it's going to look like, and verse 5 is just an awesome verse. Imagine Joshua hearing this. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I will not leave you or forsake you. God, that's just so beautiful. What if I'm unfaithful? I will not leave you. What if I am scared? I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land. God speaks clearly. His mission, His call, His commands, it's not some ambiguous mystery to figure out, I don't think. Although we play like it is. It's very explicit. It's common, I think, for people today to speak about the mysterious will of God and call and and all these loaded words, not necessarily in a biblical way, but in a way that suits their own desires and i've seen people do i've seen people use god's will not necessarily his word god's will to excuse them from following god's commands and actually do nothing i've seen them use this god's will to avoid the commands they don't like i've seen them use god's will as a permission to delay obedience until i feel like it even Bring it in. Well, the Holy Spirit hasn't caused me to feel that way yet. I don't see Scripture speaking about many feelings except when God commands me to have some, which is interesting. Delight in my word. Okay. How do you manufacture a feeling? You don't, but God can. God's will for our lives personally and corporately, so as a, as a church or a body or a group, as a community, are laid out very clearly in Scripture. They have very little to do with what job you should have, where you should live, what college I should go to. Personally, uh, let me just give you, like, here it is. Here's God's will. Ready? Personally, your mission, my mission, is to acknowledge first our sinfulness. I am broken, I am rebellious, I am disobedient, I am dirty, I am impure, I am imperfect, I not, should not be allowed in your presence. That's where it begins. Then we confess trust in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is our will, God's will for us. Then we express gratitude for Jesus giving us New life, empowering us with new life to live for Him and worship Him. And we depend upon the Holy Spirit that He sends to cause us to love Him more and love sin less and tell others about Him. There you go. There's your mission. And then corporately, as people who all come to that same agreement, who all love Jesus that way as a group, what does God say we do? We love one another, 
in community. We serve one another. We sacrifice for one another. We encourage one another. We rebuke one another. We support one another. And we proclaim Jesus to one another and then with one another to the world. There's the mission clearly laid out. What should I do? Start there. And after God sets this clear mission, what He does do, I believe, any mission starts like this. He does raise up leaders to lead the charge. Leaders to say, do this. And I think Joshua, quite frankly, gives us an incredible amount of insight as to why most people refuse to step up and lead. Refuse to be the one voice saying, let's go. Refuse to actually step into the void where it's going to be uncomfortable where he might be shot at and criticized. And I think it's because, in, his, in verse 4, he describes it as a war. good uh, friend of mine, Acts 29 pastor in um, Omaha, Nebraska, named Bob Thune, he says it this way, so I stole it from him, but I gave him credit, so it works. He says, Jesus uses the language of war to describe his mission. And he tells us to expect a brutal conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And he promises us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so we should expect that progress in God's mission has a similar dynamic to progress in a war. The first troops to land are responsible to establish a beachhead and get killed the most. I added that part. And they sustain the heaviest fire and hold the ground for those who come behind them. And then slowly, methodically, the surge of troops comes and begins to take back the ground that was once held by the enemy. People don't want to lead because it means leading into battle, leading into a war, where very, quite frankly, you will kill many of the things that you actually wanted and you may actually lose your life. And if you don't lose your life practically, you lose that little vision of the life that you thought you wanted and had and deserved or whatever. But that is not to say that every leader is some manly manimal, have to go and charge like a battle. I think God, quite frankly, uses pretty foolish leaders that are weak. In fact, if you just look at the disciples... If you look at all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, you begin to see that these were not the cream of the crop that we might pick with our own eyes. And it's to say that when opportunity comes to lead, you shouldn't ask yourself questions like, well, am I fully capable? If, if the opportunities come before you and you feel God's command calling you to step into there, you take whatever fighting style God has given you. And there's lots of different kinds. But we all fight. We all have our own way to battle that God, I believe, has given us. Not everyone's going to be a preacher. Not everyone's going to be a prayer warrior. Not everyone's going to be an incredible writer. But God has gifted you in some way to fight for Him in this world. And God promises this strong leader that He's going to make strong, that His success, although He's a general, right? His success is not going to be based on his past successes, his current skills, or his future odds of like, well, I think I could probably take these guys. His success is based on God, who never leaves you, who reminds of them that. Because, I mean, Joshua's got to be thinking, well, I'm a general, I could probably take this. I can do this. 
He's like, by the way, General Joshua, I'm going before you. I will be with you, and that's the only reason you'll be successful and the reason that you can be, as he says in the next verses, strong and courageous. He tells him this three times. Be, only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The promises of God, I do not believe, should make us arrogant, but without question they should make us confident. And there is a difference between those two. God does not choose generals all the time. Guys, we go, man, Joshua, of course they picked him. He chooses weak people, and then he says, be strong and courageous. And he uses this term three times in this first chapter. And in our culture, it could be very easy to misunderstand it as, you know, be a general. Be strong, be tough, be a man. And there is a time and a place for that. But that's not what he's talking about. I mean, without question, some people need to just flat out step up. But Joshua is not one of those guys. Joshua is not a pansy. He is a strong, proven general. The guy who has a, uh, was the minority voice against all of Israel saying, no, let's go. You guys are wrong. He is a strong and a courageous man. From our measurement. He is strong, and yet God's like, be strong and courageous. He is supposed to be strong and courageous in a particular way that has very little to do with his ability to fight. He says, be strong, fight hard, but your strength and courage has to do with being faithful to God's word. As he follows God, Joshua is going to be commanded and encounter battles that feel difficult, that are strange. God's going to go do some crazy things. When you see some pictures of Jericho, like what Jericho actually probably looked like, it's going to blow your mind when he says, hey, go go march around that city seven times. Go take on these, these armies that have way more weapons than you, have chariots that can crush you. And I'm going to go ahead and drop stones from heaven, but I'm not going to tell you that yet. He's going to be asked to do some things that are completely countercultural, completely counterintuitive to what he feels and thinks. They're completely offensive to his emotions. That's what God's commands do. They offend our emotions. Why? Because our emotions are steeped in sin. Our intellect, we like to like, well, that doesn't make sense. Right. That's why when Jesus was talking to Peter, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to have to go and die. He's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to die? And he tells him, get behind me, Satan. But that's foolish. Yes, the cross is completely foolish and beautiful and glorious and the answer to everything. But it is foolish. And so he's going to be asked to do some things. And God's going to say, go do this. And the the battle for him is going to be the temptation to turn to the left or turn to the right based off what he thinks or feels. And that's the battle for all of us. The battle isn't ultimately to get a bunch of land and to succeed and to do these things. The battle takes place in our hearts right here to say, are you actually going to obey when God's commands come? That's it. 
Are you going to follow exactly what he says and not just kind of? You follow God's word kind of, you're just a little bit off. Lay that out ten years of kind of. What starts here ends up over here. Faithfulness to God's word despite what it feels like. And God says, if you are faithful, Joshua, to my word that I will give, you will succeed. Now Joshua has seen firsthand what happens when people turn away from following God's word. If you turn away from following God's word, if you ignore God's word, if you passively accept God's word and just verbally confess but don't actually do anything, what happens when men reject God's word is they are filled with fear. They fear everything because they don't fear God. They fear losing. I always say this. You want to know what your idol is? I fear losing blank the most. If it's not Jesus, there's your idol of the month. You fear losing your job. You fear that whatever relationship is going to break down. You fear not having enough money. If that is taking the place of God, you are rejecting His Word. You are not living in His promises. People who reject God's Word live in fear. People who reject, and this is just based off what he's seen. If you reject God's Word, they wander without purpose. It's exactly what they did. When they rejected God's Word, they were defeated in battle. They tried to battle without God. And they were defeated. And I see that time and time again. I sit down with people, quite frankly. I counsel them. And I say, okay. They tell me their story and I say, here's what God's Word says. 75, 80% of the time they don't do that and they decide on a different track. And they end up defeated. And they come back, well, it didn't work. I say, well, did you do what the Bible said? Kinda. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that when we reject God's Word that we can't defeat sin? That we are continually in bondage when we reject God's Word. Well, I'm just going to white knuckle and, and do it. That's not what God's Word says to do. It actually says to admit that you can't white knuckle it and that you need the grace and the power of God. When we reject God's Word, I believe that we're denied joy. We are convinced in our mind the enemy who tells us little lies that happiness lies outside of God's Word, which is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God's Word came, Satan comes in, says, dude, that's actually not right. God's holding out on you. There's happiness over here outside of what God has told you. And they went. That's the simplicity of it. And then we buy into it, believing that we are going to be happier if we don't do it God's way. We're going to be happier if we don't obey God's word. And we end up dying like Adam and Eve. They're lies. And the book of Joshua shows what it means to have words, God's word guide you. He, he says, be careful, be strong and courageous. And he tells them specifically what that means. How you can be careful to follow God's word. What does he tell him? Let it not depart from your mouth. Think about this. Do you regularly speak about God's word? I asked the guys this at the men's retreat. I said, when was the last time or how often do you speak about Jesus and the scripture in your home? With your friends? In your job? No one's saying like going, throwing down the you know, four spiritual laws for people. But I'm asking like, do you speak about it? Is it filling your mouth? 
There's a reason why James 3 says the tongue is a fire and has the power of hell behind it. That's why we fill it with God's word because the natural default is bad stuff. Does it not depart from your mouth? And you have to be careful to do that. Actually, intentional to do that. Do you think and pray about God's word day and night? It says, meditate on it day and night. Well, I do on Sunday between, you know, 1045 and 11. Do you meditate on it day and night? Do you think about it? And if not, what are you thinking about? Think about when you when left alone and you just kind of have time to wander, where does your mind go? Quite frankly, I think a lot of times it goes into the land of idolatry dreaming because we're not intentionally thinking about God's Word. And then lastly, do you obey God's Word? Because you can talk about it, you can think about it, and you can still disobey it. Do you actually do it? Do you actually do it? Do you do according to all it says and not just the parts that are easy? So the book of James, if you remember in our study, the book of James says there are two places to get wisdom, above and below. So God and Satan, basically. And God says here that the wisdom of God, the Word of God, is what brings prosperity. Now Proverbs 16, you probably have heard this verse, says the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord. That's active. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, this is not, and I don't think God's promise of success and prosperity is promise of riches and material success in life. I don't think that is what is meant here. The Hebrew word for commit actually can describe the act of rolling something away. And in this case, I think it's our natural desire to commit all of our work to ourselves. That's the natural default mode for us. And if you submit your life to God's Word, you will prosper wherever you go. Okay? Now catch this. If you submit your life to God's Word, you will prosper wherever you go. But, the funny or perhaps frightening thing is if you truly worship Jesus if you truly follow and meditate and think about God's word he may send you exactly where you fear going most that's the rub of it and that's why we don't spend time in God's word we dare not actually read a command that they will be accountable for I mean quite frankly just ask yourself do you read God's Word? No, I mean, do you, really, do you read God's Word? Do you read God's Word? What is it to you? Is it just a guidebook? Is it just some good moral stories in there? Or is it the living God speaking to you, telling you how life can be prosperous wherever you go, namely where He's intending to send you? He intends to make you successful where He is sending you. And it's sad that many people go on their own direction and expect prosperity and success when God never told them to go there. And that doesn't even begin. I was talking with Jim and 
That doesn't even begin to explain what God means by prospering you, even in the direction you go. Because it's always from his perspective, and he certainly knows what we need more than we do. But we are, without question, entitled to death for our rebellion and not entitled to existence at all. And when you see that, when you actually believe that, you'll begin to see that everything this side of hell is God's grace. Everything this side of hell is God's grace. Whether it be sickness or health, prosperity or poverty, everything is an act of God's grace. True faithfulness. True, genuine faithfulness is what Joshua represents, and it seems not so, some of the things he's asked to do. It's not measured even by the number of victories and defeats in our life on an earthly, material, financial, physical level. Faithfulness is measured by the depth of trust you have in God and desire for His glory, whether you experience earthly victory or defeat at all. It's devotion. Because if that devotion is there, when the defeat comes, you are not destroyed. In fact, you're transformed in a way that's more beautiful than ever probably could have happened without it. And if, check this out, if the life of Jesus is the example of a man who was faithful perfectly, Perfectly worshiping. The one who you can say was the most prosperous in God's eyes. The most successful in the eyes of God. Then the most glorifying life possible, the thing to aspire to, will be a life that includes giving all that I have, my comfort, my reputation, my popularity, my money, my home, my health, even my very life to uphold the name of Jesus who was the first one to be strong and courageous. We don't look at life like that. And we're supposed to. We're commanded to. We'll close with verse 9 where he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua has been chosen for a mission, and he can't avoid responsibility. He can't say, choose someone else. And there are people like that here. There are certain things that only you can do because God has told you to do. God is not giving Joshua, and often he's not giving us suggestions or good advice. He is giving commands that he expects those he has chosen to follow. Successful leaders like Joshua, I think, often appear strong, like from the outside. We go, well, of course he's doing it. He's a strong general. But in truth, I think they're often filled with a lot of fear. And they're just willing and faithful to step into it because they fear God more. And God sees fit, though, to to tell his very strong-looking general, the guy that has proven to be courageous, he still sees fit to remind him that he must fear God more than he will be tempted to fear a great many other things. And he reminds them he needs to find hope in God because he will have success. And how easy is it to start, when you have a victory, go, dang, I'm good. I can sure fight, huh? He reminds them his hope is not in himself, 
and should not be in what's going to be tempting to see the number of idols that will maybe come into his life that guarantee happiness. God commands him to be strong. And for me, for example, I feel totally weak. And I think Joshua probably feels the same way. He commands him, do not be afraid. And he looks up to the land and is like, are you serious? Don't be afraid at all. Like, just like, I'm just not afraid. Or, go, fight, conquer. Like, I just, I feel ill-equipped. Or love my word. But I, but I love so many other things. This is largely why I am reformed in my theology. Because God can command me to feel things that I can't feel. And I can't manufacture in myself. That's why in Joshua 1.5 and in 1.9, He says pretty much the same thing. I will never leave you. In verse 9, I will be with you wherever you go. Catch this, if you learn nothing else today. God doesn't command what He doesn't accomplish for those who are His. God doesn't command what He Himself doesn't accomplish. That doesn't mean that He commands only what we can accomplish in ourselves. Only what we think or feel or imagine that we can actually do. It means that God is way bigger than that, and He actually commands what He knows is impossible. He commands what is impossible, and then in Christ, He does it through us and for us. Oh my gosh, God is big. He is big. And He reminds us that our ability to follow, our ability to worship, our ability to lead, our ability to give full devotion to God with all hearts will never ultimately rest or come from our own efforts, our own abilities, our own desires. It's impossible for it to. Strength and courage to follow God come from faith in Jesus who was strong and courageous for us. So when we come to the table for communion, this is not just... One altar call, I believe when I was four and I just live now normally. Life is a fight. Life is a constant, be strong and courageous. But we are not just to white knuckle and be strong in ourselves. We come to communion every Sunday, every time we gather to declare that we are weak, that I am not strong, that I am not courageous. But when I put on my Jesus suit, when I'm cleansed of all my brokenness and my idolatry is exposed and I confess it, He says, you are now because you're dependent upon Me. I go before you. You just follow. I'm charging the hill. We're going to win. I already have. Follow. Don't be scared, although it's scary. Don't doubt, though you'll be tempted to. Follow. Be strong and courageous because I have already done it. Let's pray. Father, I confess to You my own brokenness, my own self-confidence that is sinful. Lord, when Your commands come, I am so tempted to run from them. I am so tempted, Father, to fear so many things instead of fearing You above all things. Transform my heart, Lord.
Transform our hearts. Let us know that you don't call us to be strong and courageous without making us strong and courageous. Remind us, Father, that you command us to depend upon you, to recognize our own weakness, to confess our own brokenness, that my feelings and my thoughts and my experiences want me to run from you. But you, Father, by the power of Christ, through the Spirit, will help me to be faithful and strong and courageous to your word. Amen.